Hello, friends. Thank you for continuing to tune in uh, to uh, our teachings, our, our teachings podcast here on Spotify and some other platforms. So great to have you follow along with our conversation at Discovery in this way. Uh, today is June 21st, 2020. This has been a big weekend um, in our world. Uh, the 19th, Friday, a couple days ago, Juneteenth, yesterday, World Refugee Day, of course, today, Father's Day. All of that's great. I'm going to make today, though, about me, okay? <laughs> uh, because not only are all of those other things going on, but today is also my birthday. And it's not just any old birthday. Today is my 40th birthday. I was born on June 21st, 1980, 40 years ago. And when we were planning this year out, and we, we do plan things out well in advance. When we were looking at the calendar for the year. I was actually really excited about this when I saw, oh wow, June 21st, it falls on a Sunday. It's my 40th birthday. I'm going to get to spend it uh, with some of my favorite people on planet Earth. I was so excited about the prospect of being able to share this with you guys in person. And I'm super bummed to lose out on the opportunity to do that together. This ability to celebrate a milestone birthday, doing the thing that I love, worshiping, teaching, uh, being together, drinking coffee, hanging out in the theater, all of us in the same place. And it is a lament of mine to have had to let that dream go. So this is not exactly what I had in mind or how I hoped this would go, but I'm still excited to share some stuff with you this morning as it pertains to turning 40. I've been thinking a lot about the process of getting older, what it means to age, how do we age well, how do we think about that. This is not something we talk about a lot in the church. And so that's what we're going to do. We're hitting pause on our uh, conversation in the life of David, our our David in real life, uh, you know, journey through the book of 1 Samuel. Hitting pause on that today, and we're going to talk about getting older. And we're going to do it through the lens of one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture, this guy named Caleb. Uh, if you're listening, following along with us, and you have the ability to get out a Bible or a phone or whatever it is that you read Scripture in or on, get that out. We're going to look at Joshua chapter 14. We're also going to be in the book of Numbers for a while as well. But I want to start with Joshua 14, just two short verses, verses 13 and 14. So 14, 13, and 14. Joshua blessed Caleb, Caleb son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as it is as his inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, ever since because Caleb followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. In the early 1890s, Joshua Slocum, this is not the Joshua that we just read about from Scripture, Joshua Slocum, a seasoned sailor, a man who had spent a lot of time on the oceans, particularly the East Coast, Atlantic Ocean, out of Boston, he acquired a vessel called the Spray. Now, when Slocum got his hands on the Spray, the boat was in poor condition, but he saw the potential that this vessel had. And so he marches into the woods, chops down some trees for lumber, 
like you do. And then he rebuilds the spray plank by plank. Then he sails the boat around the world by himself. He's the first person to circumnavigate the globe by boat alone, taking this ratty old ship, the spray, turning it into something using uh, wood that he had chopped down out in the forest. He circumnavigates the, the globe by boat alone, and then he writes about his adventures in a book called Sailing Alone Around the World, which is exactly the right title for that book. Why do I tell you about Joshua Slocum? Well, he did all of this at the age of 51. Our culture resists aging. Eternal youth is this sought-after ideal. And it's almost like when you hit a certain age, and I feel like this age is becoming younger and younger all the time, but after a certain point, you become irrelevant. You're no longer the target demographic. You're no longer the centered age bracket that advertisers and people who influence and set trends and all this kind of stuff care about. And, and so then, you know, we end up saying things like, uh, you know, I'm doing this thing, I'm working out, I'm pursuing this hobby, whatever it might be. I got to do this to stay young. Why do we say that? Why do we say, you know, I got to be active, learn new things, whatever, blah, 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 so that I can stay young? Why do we say that? Joshua Slocum sails around the world, first person to sail around the world alone at the age of 51. Julia Childs published her first cookbook at the age of 49. Satchel Page pitched in the major leagues at 59. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings in his early 60s. Katsusuke Yanagisawa climbed Mount Everest at the age of 72. And at 86, Catherine Pilton swam the 200 butterfly in three minutes and one second. P.S. That's a lot faster than I can swim the 200 butterfly at the age of 40. Betty White, don't forget about Betty White, 98 years old, 80 years in television. Why don't we say, I got to do this thing so that I become mature or wise or even old? We resist aging and yet life is not over just because we get a gray hair or we cross a milestone because we turn 40. (laughs) Are you with me? Now, as I mentioned before, thinking about aging, talking about aging is not something we do much in our culture. It's not something we even do much in the church. And so there's a really big question for us here. How do we age well? What does that even look like? Do we have any models for us? And I want to argue just right up front. I want to argue Caleb is a great model for us and what it looks like to grow old well. Back to Joshua chapter 14. I want to read the six or seven verses that come before what we read there just a moment ago. So skipping down to verse six. Now the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal and Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said to him, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. 
I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. So give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. We begin here at the end of Caleb's story. We don't know how much longer he lived after this, or at least it's not in this particular chapter here. But when we meet Caleb in Joshua chapter 14, he's 85 years old and he is still ready to kick some butt. I love that of this old man as excited as ever to get after it. Now, Caleb alludes here to the fact that there's some backstory. This isn't just an 85-year-old man who wants a piece of land to live on. There's a lot going on back in some history here. And this is where I want you to turn with me now to the book of Numbers. We're going to get into this. Just a little bit of context, though, leading up to where Caleb enters the story. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to give you land and descendants. And your descendants will become a great nation. I'm going to use them to bless all the families of the earth. Well, the family leaves that land a couple generations later to go to Egypt during a time of famine. This was a good thing initially because they don't starve to death. They get food in Egypt. But then it becomes a bad thing because they become enslaved. 400 years pass by. God rescues his people from slavery using a leader named Moses. Moses leads the people out of Egypt through a desert back to their land. And when they get to the land, they can't just walk right in. Okay, it's been 400 years. A lot of other people have settled into this land during that time. And so Moses wants to send some people out, some spies, to have a look around and to see what they may be getting themselves into. Moses selects one man from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Caleb is one of those 12. So the spies go and they have a look around. And quite frankly, the land is pretty amazing. They describe it as flowing with milk and honey. This is not literal. This is metaphorical language to say this is awesome land. It's fertile. It's abundant. It's got good stuff for us. We're going to be taken care of here. Now, they bring back some of what they find, some of the fruit. This is Numbers 13, 27. And, and again, this this pretty great report about what the land looks like. Now, I imagine Caleb at this point is is stoked based on his passion and enthusiasm that we see all throughout his story. He's so excited, right? He's seen this land, this good, abundant land, and he can't wait to tell everybody about what they've seen. And so he's all fired up and all 12 of these guys get up in front of the people ready to give their report. And then comes this great bait and switch. Numbers 13 Verse 28, the people who lived there 
The spies say are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. And I, again, pictured Caleb all, all pumped up and ready to go, just like whipping his head around going, what? That's not what we were going to say. What is, what is this? And so he can't hold back. Verse 30, Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land. We can certainly do it. Twelve spies go in, ten are naysayers, two think that it's possible. The, the naysayers keep at it. No, 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 they say they're big, they're strong, they're bigger than us. We're like grasshoppers compared to them. And so Israel, the people of Israel, cry out, they weep aloud, and they say, this is now the beginning of chapter 14 in the book of Numbers. They say, oh, would have been better to die in Egypt. Let us find someone to lead us back. And so Moses and Aaron, they fall down on their face. This is what you do sometimes when you are a leader and everyone is losing their minds. And Joshua and Caleb double down, again, repeating, no, 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 the land is good. God will give it to us. Don't be afraid. The Lord is with us. Look at chapter 14, verses 6 through 9. Joshua and Caleb double down the people, though. Now, not only are they, they kind of lamenting their fate, they want to stone Joshua and Caleb. And so finally, Moses and God have a, a conversation. And it's not a pleasant one. And it's not a conversation that ends well for the people of Israel. The result is that no one from this generation will get to enter the land. For 40 years, they're going to have to wander around in the desert, waiting for this generation to die out. And then the next generation will go in. There are two exceptions to this, Joshua and Caleb. And the storyteller singles Caleb out in particular. Numbers 14, 24, my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly. I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit. And this is what Caleb is referring to in Joshua chapter 14. Now, there are two important phrases here. Let's talk about the first one, which is this different spirit. Caleb has a different spirit. I want us to use our holy imaginations to explore this for a moment because Caleb will drop out of the story for a while. I want us to think about what Caleb had to live through for four and a half decades. He had to do a lot of funerals. All his friends, this whole generation had to die before he would get to go in to the land. This probably led to a lot of awkward conversations. And certainly there were many opportunities for Caleb to say, you know what? You really should have listened to me. And then here's the other thing. There's also nowhere to hide. There's no other church for Caleb to jump to. No, uh, you know, better, more exciting, sexier community for him to bail and go join. They were stuck together in this desert. Then on top of all of that, Caleb is passed over for leadership. Joshua is the one who gets to take over from Moses. This happens in Numbers chapter 27. Joshua gets the book deal. Are you with me? <laughs> if anyone ever had justification for being a bitter old man, it certainly was Caleb. And yet, when we get to Joshua 14, he's still 
just as vigorous, as strong, and as passionate as he was 45 years earlier. Caleb is the embodiment of what Scripture defines as success many different times. This word faithful, faithfulness, fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. This is Caleb. Well done, good and faithful Caleb. And so my question is, how did that happen? How did that happen? How did he go from 40 to 85, passed over, uh, doing funerals, watching everybody die, waiting and waiting and waiting, and come out the other side of it just as passionate, as vigorous, as ready to get after it as he was 45 years earlier? Well, here's the honest answer. (laughs) We don't totally know. Okay, Again, a lot of Caleb's story is left untold. But from what we do know, I think Caleb had a healthy amount of a couple of key qualities. And these are qualities that are very applicable to us. When we talk about what does it look like to age well, how do we grow old in a way that leads to this kind of faithfulness or represents this kind of faithfulness that Caleb had. Well, here, here we go. Let's talk about this. Okay, first of all, Caleb had strong convictions and he stuck to them. Now, I want to say a couple of things here about having strong convictions. Many years ago, I had the privilege of, of meeting and spending time with a guy named Randolph. Um, he was the campus minister at uh, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, for over 40 years. And one thing that he would say often was that wisdom is coming to value answers as much as the questions. Now, total transparency, I found that to be kind of annoying because I like questions. (laughs) I think questions are so important to our formation. I see Jesus asking a bunch of questions. And then I also maybe have a little bit of a reaction to watching a lot of people have strong convictions, but then at the same time be incredibly unloving inflexible, full of pride, people who are stuck in their ways. And for me, just, I don't know, man, the way that I'm wired up, my personality stuck in your ways, to be stuck in my ways, it feels like a kind of death sentence. And some of the older, some of my older friends who I admire the most definitely have convictions but they're also open and curious and they keep learning new things. They are flexible. They're the opposite of stuck in their ways. And so there's a, a tension here. Again, I know, I know folks who have gone so deep into their questions, they're left with nothing to hold on to. And on the other side of that, I know folks who are so into their convictions that there's no space left, no room left for growth. And so how do we hold our convictions? How do we hold our convictions well? Well, there are two other qualities that Caleb exhibits that balance this. So he had strong convictions, but he also has great humility and joy. You don't walk around the desert watching all of your friends die off, knowing what you are missing out on, fending off cynicism and bitterness if you don't have a strong sense of humility. And we've defined humility as a right understanding of who you are and who God is. Caleb makes his convictions known, but we never see him 
take it out on anyone. There's no I told you so's in Caleb's story. No stink raised when God chooses Joshua to take over. He doesn't undermine anything. Our convictions should always be tempered by the truth that we are not God. That his ways and thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts. So we humbly hold our convictions in light of this truth. And then to go 45 years in the desert without losing your mind, dealing with all of that nonsense, you have to find something to laugh about. You have to have a sense of humor. And even more than a sense of humor, this quality of joy. Joy is a central component, I believe, of ministry. It's one of our core values at Discovery. And here's one of the reasons why. It's because that person of conviction oftentimes is the least joyful person in the room. We, we often think that, oh, who's the most serious dour person? They must be the most spiritual. But, but don't forget, right? Don't forget Jesus had fun. Jesus had a great time. He was accused. He had such a good time. He was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton, Matthew eleven nineteen. And this man had the most deadly mission, most deadly serious mission of all time. The Caleb we meet in Joshua 14, passionate, vigorous, holds his convictions, but also joyful. He has that sense of awe and wonder, that sense of, I can't believe I still get to do this. Now, Caleb, underneath all this, clearly believed that God was good and that the land God wanted to give to his people was good. And he never backed off those convictions his entire life. But those convictions clearly were balanced by humility Enjoy. My friends, hold tightly to a few critical things and be open-handed about the rest. We oftentimes flip that around. We hold on tightly to too many things and are open-handed about too few. Are you with me? Caleb, we might say it this way. Caleb had a vision for the good life, a life with God, a life in the land, and that simple vision sustained him. And he was able to leave the rest of it in God's hands. Do you have a vision for the good life? For a good life? What is your vision? A simple vision to sustain you and free you up to leave the rest in God's hands. When I was in college, I spent a lot of time going to this thing called Graceland. It was a alternative worship service that was started out of Santa Cruz Bible Church. Over the years, it's evolved to become its own independent church called uh, Vintage Faith. And, you know, there's, um, I, I feel like God has, you know, been active and leading in, in my life in so many different ways. But I only have a few moments where I feel like, oh, man, that was a real clear, like, God spoke to me kind of moment. One of them was, as a student going to Graceland. <clears throat> and the context for this moment is that, again, Graceland was meeting at Santa Cruz Bible Church, but wasn't necessarily part of Santa Cruz Bible Church, but sort of. It's kind of confusing. That's not really the point. The point is Santa Cruz Bible Church, not Graceland, was uh, doing a building project, building campaign. They wanted to build... Um, this like two-story building that would be classrooms and, and an education wing, if you will, uh, of their facility. 
So they raise the money, they build this thing. Graceland's only sort of tangentially involved in it. But when they came to the point of opening these buildings, they did want to invite the Graceland community to be a part of like christening, commissioning the buildings. I don't know what the right word is there, but you know what I mean. So I was there that particular night. Um, Steve Clifford, uh, who's a wonderful pastor now in San Jose, also professor at Western Seminary where I went. He was on staff at Santa Cruz at that time. He gets up that night to pray this prayer of blessing over the buildings. And he did a fascinating thing. I'll never forget this. He basically said, you know what, guys, forget the buildings. <laughs> those, those are, uh, in the grand scheme of things, not all that important. They're just a space for ministry to happen. He said, what I really want to do tonight is I want to pray for the people who are going to go to discipleship trainings, theology classes, seminary classes, who are going to basically be educated, trained up in these facilities. And he said, I want to pray for some of you who are here right now at this Graceland gathering, because some of you are going to be leaders of the church in the future. And so he starts praying and he begins to pray for uh, those of us who are in the room for this future generation of church leadership. And as he's praying this, I just had this extremely clear, strong sense that he was praying for me. That God was saying, Steve Boutry, Steve Clifford is praying for you because you're going to be a part of a new generation of church leadership that will build a different kind of church that will reach emerging generations. A church that's on mission, that points people towards God's shalom, the good news of Jesus. A church that will be broken and poured out for the good of its neighbors. And, and that vision has become the sustaining vision for me, the conviction that has kept me going to, to plant a church in Colorado, to do campus ministry in Boston, to be a part uh, of an urban multi-ethnic church in Oakland, California, and now here to help lead discovery into a new chapter in its story. And, and let's be real clear here. There are a lot of questions that I still have. There are moments of discouragement. There are times where the vision is attacked. There are times where I question the vision. But like Caleb, I come back to this truth where we are going is good and God is with us. Simple convictions coupled with joy and humility brings freedom. Let me say this again. Simple convictions coupled with joy and humility brings freedom. Caleb is freed up to be wholehearted. This is mentioned six different times. Numbers 14.24, Numbers 32.12, Deuteronomy 1.30, I think it's 6 and 37, Joshua 14, verse 8, 9, and 14, wholehearted. For too many of us, the issue isn't that we are pursuing the wrong things as much as it is we are pursuing too many things. Soren Kierkegaard said it this way, purity of heart is to will one thing. What does it look like to be wholehearted? Tom Schmidt tells a story from 
a time in his life when he was training to become a hospital chaplain. He uh, gets this assignment at a state-run convalescent hospital where he met an 89-year-old woman named Mabel. He was drawn to Mabel because she seemed to be kind of active, but was also clearly in a rough state. She was blind, part of her face was being eaten by cancer, and she smelled because of open sores on her body. Tom discovered pretty quickly she'd been there for 25 years. On his first visit, he offered her flowers and she received them and smiled, smelled the flowers, thanked him for them, and then said, they're lovely, but I'm blind. Is it okay if I give them to someone else who can see them and enjoy looking at them, brighten their day? Tom said, sure, and so he pushes her around till they find another patient and Mabel hands the flowers over and says, here, this is from Jesus. Tom writes, that's when it dawned on me that this was no ordinary human. They begin to hang out every week. Tom gets to learn more of her story about how Mabel had grown up on a small farm with only her mom, how her mother had died young, and how Mabel had ran the farm for many years, basically on her own, until blindness and sickness had sent her to the hospital in her mid-60s. One of Mabel's favorite things to do with Tom was to sing hymns, and they'd be singing these great old songs together, and then she would stop and she would comment on the lyrics and what they meant to her. Tom says, the only time I ever heard her speak of loneliness or pain was in the stress she placed on certain lines in certain hymns. He continues, during one hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in 10 directions at once with all the things I had to think about. And in the middle of that, the question occurred to me, what does Mabel think about? Hour after hour, day after day, unsure if it's even day or night. So I asked her, Mabel, what do you think about while you lie here? And she said, I think about my Jesus. Tom says, I sat there and thought for a moment about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And then I asked, well, what do you think when you think about Jesus? And Mabel replied slowly and deliberately, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned. But I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. Whole-hearted. Now my prayer is that you would have a long and a happy life, that you would age well that we would grow in joy and humility and our convictions and in wholeheartedness. But the reality is life is short and eternity is long. And so underneath all of that is this question that Tom asks Mabel, what do you think about Jesus? And is he all the world to you? May you know and discover the good news of Jesus how good he's been to us, what he's done to us, that he is worth 
trading everything, selling everything for, that he is worth pursuing wholeheartedly. Grace and peace, my friends.